U.S. home prices are up again. J.P. Morgan's facing another big payout. And nobody cares that you predicted the next financial crisis. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I am Matt Kopenheffer, and right here next to me, as always, David Hansen. Hello. David, in a recent interview, Katy Perry said that she does not like to get up to do any work before 11 a.m., do we need to change the, the, the film time of this show to accommodate your needs? I'm fine with it. How about you? 11 a.m., that's pretty late. Uh, I disagree. Hey, you're, you're, a, you're a latecomer in it. <laughs> I am. I like to sleep in in the morning. If we could film so that I could sleep in until 11 a.m., that would be pretty nice. I don't okay. think that's going to happen, but it would be pretty well, nice. Well, next time we have Katy Perry on the show, we'll be sure to push it back a little bit. D- definitely. That's, that's actually more the reason I was asking. So when we have Katy Perry in to talk about the bank stocks that she owns... I'm sure she does. She's quite an enthusiast in the banks. Most everybody is. All right, uh, (laughs) heading over to the headlines. First headline of the day comes from Bloomberg. The headline is U.S. home prices rose 0.3% in August from July, FHFA says. Surging. Surging. Uh, The prices were up 0.3%, as the headline says. Uh, This is the smallest monthly gain in home prices over the past 11 months. So almost a year, we haven't seen a month-over-month gain of this magnitude. I, I don't, I, don't, I mean, I, I have trouble worrying about this. Mm-hmm. It's moving in the right direction, first of all. Second of all, if, if you go back and look at the, uh, the pace of housing price gains over long periods of time, you can go look at the, the work that Robert Schiller has mm-hmm. done. We shouldn't be expecting huge, particularly what we've seen over the past months, over the past years since the financial crisis. We shouldn't be expecting these huge moves. Yeah, 0.3% is, I think that's more than what the long-term historical average is. Uh, year over year, it was up 8.5%. So that's definitely very healthy. We should, not, we should not expect that going forward. And one thing that was interesting in that article was that inventory and, that's a, and supply increased for the first time since early 2011. So people are starting to come back to the market, putting their houses on the market. And we should not expect big gains in the housing market. I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing for consumers, a good thing for banks. A stable housing system is much better than one that's surging 10% a year. Stable is the word. I'm, I'm with you on that one. All right, moving on to the next headline. This one is from American banker. We got more bank earnings season starting to round out. This one is New York community profits fall on mortgage banking, and this is New York Community Bank. Uh, a regional down there, much smaller than the big guys we talk about, around just under $50 billion in assets. But it's, it's still a pretty big still bank. A big in scope. Uh, number 20? Number 20, I think, overall? We can call it number 20. Close mm-hmm. enough. Uh, if you follow this bank, uh, one of the reasons you probably follow it is the dividend. Very solid dividend there, and they declared 39th consecutive quarter of a 25% or 25 cent dividend, not 25%. That'd be quite hefty. Uh, the yield's around 6% there. The results were pretty good. Return on tangible equity, almost 15%. You're paying two times book for this bank. So when I look at it, I think it's a reasonable bank to hold if it's in your portfolio. I think I wouldn't expect huge price gains, but I think the dividend's pretty safe. They didn't cut it through the financial crisis. So if you're an investor here, I, I think you continue to feel good about it. Yeah, it's 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 pretty okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's about the best I can say of it as an investment. But it's a it's a well-run bank, as the headline suggests. Mortgage banking indeed 
fell and fell drastically, uh, but we shouldn't have expected anything other. But the uh, the returns still look good, as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. The credit quality continues to improve. That's looking really good. The efficiency ratio at this bank, which is, uh, again, that's the, the, the cost that the bank has over the revenue that it produces. Uh, like in golf, we want to see a lower number. Lower number's better. It's in the 40s yeah, kind of range. Low. That is very low, and that speaks to the, the quality of this bank. So, And, and if, you, if you talk about real estate markets that are pretty secure, New York City multifamily yeah. real estate properties, that's pretty secure. I think this is a well-run bank. I agree. Third headline of the day, this comes from the Wall Street Journal, and it's J.P. Morgan faces another potential huge payout. Why does that woman look so cold? <laughs> For those of you listening, sorry, but she's, she's crossing her arms and shivering, it appears. chilly. But I think that's they, the, the attorney for the investors that are seeking uh, some settlement from J.P. Morgan right. here, and these are private investors. I think she's supposed to look steely. Okay. Steely. She's committed, she's committed to getting this money, and this is, this is a lot of money. This is billions of dollars. This is another multi, potential multi-billion dollar payout. Uh, this would be similar. So, so we just heard about this $13 billion uh, deal with the government. This is separate. That, uh, right. This is, this is separate. So this is going to be with private investors for uh, mortgage products, uh, mortgage-backed securities that, that J.P. Morgan and Bear Stearns and Washington Mutual put together prior to, t- to the uh, financial crisis. This would be similar to the $8.5 billion settlement the Bank of America had uh, through Bank of New York Mellon with a bunch of other investors. Mm-hmm. That's currently in court. They're waiting to get the final approval on that, but this would be a similar kind of thing. In terms of what J.P. Morgan investors should expect, in the results, we just saw a big set aside for legal settlements last quarter that led to the, the loss, the loss in the quarter, mm-hmm. and uh, and that was th- this was part of that. So, if this settlement is reached, if it's within the range that that they're currently expecting, we're not going to see any any additional hit. To, uh, to the bottom line. Right, this is nothing new. And you mentioned the Bank of America proposed settlement, not finalized yet. That was in 2011. These talks with J.P. Morgan, the private investors, started right around well, the same time. So this isn't anything new. This isn't, uh, yeah. J.P. Morgan didn't open the Wall Street Journal today and say, oh no, we're getting sued. This has been in the works for quite some time. Right. Okay, uh, moving on to our in focus of the day. And I want to talk a little bit about Visa. And Visa's claim that it is everywhere that you want to be. Mm -hmm. I, as we mentioned on the show yesterday, I was just in Africa for two weeks. And so that's a good, that's a good test traveling through South Africa, traveling through Zimbabwe. How would my visa card work out? And, uh, and it actually worked out quite well. It, It really is I'm convinced now that visa really is everywhere that you want to be, at least certainly in, in sub Saharan Africa. Um, and that's particularly interesting because of the, the opportunities that Visa is expecting as it, uh, and we're seeing a, a picture on the screen here, that's actually, so that is the cable car that goes up and down Table Mountain in, uh, in South Africa, in mm-hmm. Cape Town. And you got the big Visa logo right there and the little gift shop at the top of Table Mountain accepts Visa, which is actually great because we hiked up this, uh, this steep, mountain Mm -hmm. and then it was cold and it was wet and we had other places we needed to be so we needed to take the cable car back down and all we had was the visa card there you go so it worked out pretty well and and i've got another picture in there as well this is actually this is at a small curio market in uh victoria falls zimbabwe um of course zimbabwe doesn't have its own currency anymore they use u.s dollars 
but as you can see here, you can also use Visa. Now, the reason this is important to Visa investors so when you talk about the opportunity, or when Visa talks about the opportunity that it has in emerging markets, in its uh, last year's 10K, mm-hmm. it was looking at the, the cash and check opportunity. So that is the transactions that currently happen in cash and checks that could potentially go over to credit cards. It's about $6 trillion in emerging markets. That's a lot. It's, yeah, that's not a small amount of money. And when we look at the, the split between credit transactions and cash and check transactions in uh, developed markets versus emerging markets, in emerging markets, you're still seeing a lot more cash and check transactions. And I saw that while I was abroad. Most transactions are happening in cash. So this, uh, this is a big opportunity for them. Now, in terms of security, this is when you think about emerging markets, when you think about places, you know, you travel to Zimbabwe, you think about, well, what's the security of using a credit card there? Is, is it almost a foregone conclusion that your, your card number is going to be stolen and you're going to have to go through all of that? Well, actually, it's kind of interesting. Obviously, when you're doing a, a purchase at, at a counter in a retail store, they're swiping it right there and all mm-hmm. that happens. But even in restaurants, Instead of in the U.S. we're used to you, you give your credit card over, they take it to the back, they run it, and then you fill everything in afterwards. It's all done by wireless, uh, little wireless terminals. Mm-hmm. So you keep your card in your hand, and they bring the wireless terminal over to the table, swipe it right there. You see everything that's going on. So there's, there's a much smaller chance of shenanigans. So there's a lot going on to um, – increase confidence in right. using cards like that overseas and in emerging markets. Now, my question in all of this is, is who do you invest in? So do you invest in Visa because they have gotten out ahead of everybody else? They have a, a broader distribution, they have more cards out mm-hmm. there. Or do you look towards MasterCard because they have more catching up to do. They have more space that they, more ground that they can cover. Do you, do you invest in Discover Card, which has even more right. ground to cover than um, than Mastercard does? In my mind, looking at the numbers and thinking about my experience and and what it means to have a uh, to, to be the front runner in a business like this, I think you got to own Visa. Uh, Visa's numbers for 2012. billion total transactions versus 39.8 billion total transactions for MasterCard. So you're looking at almost twice the total transactions. It's about the same for cards issued, more than 2 billion cards issued for Visa, just slightly over 1 billion cards Mm -hmm. uh, issued for MasterCard. So there's, I think there's a good story there for MasterCard that, look, there's, there's a lot of catching up, there's a lot of ground that they can make up. But I don't know that they unseat Visa, and when consumers look at them as kind of interchangeable, what do you prefer to what do you prefer to own as an investor? The the, the one that's out ahead or the one that's playing catch up? Now, the one other credit card uh, company that I could see potentially being a an investment along with Visa, American Express, mm-hmm. mainly because you're looking at a different model there. So whereas Visa, working with issuing banks, working with uh, independent mer- uh, merchant acquirers. Uh, Amex kind of controls, it has that, that whole system, it con- controls the whole system, it's got the brand, it's got a differentiated business model versus the others. So, so I'm thinking in, in this uh, kind of small field of credit card companies, those would be my, two, my top two picks, I think. Which ones, MasterCard and, and Visa, or are you including American Express? Uh, I'm, I'm saying actually, I'm saying Visa and, and American Express. I, I would say I'm an American Express shareholder, so I'm not bashing them completely. But the difference in the model here is their model is not as scalable as mm-hmm. Visa and MasterCard be, because they're the ones actually extending the credit right. 
to the customers. Visa and MasterCard, they don't they do not give loans at all. American Express, they're giving the loans. So but it's, as a it's shareholder, much how much do I care about scalability as opposed to profitability? True. Uh, <laughs> but if you're talking about that global share of right. $6 trillion, it's going to be much harder. Or, Yeah, they're not going to get the scale that a Visa or MasterCard. Right, right. I, they can go in and make exactly. these make the relationships with the merchants, with the banks, and really ramp up that scale there. So that's the difference um, there. So when you say, who do you own? I think you may own all of them. And none of these that's... none of these stocks look really cheap right now, but I think it's going to be very hard to say over the next five years, Visa is an outperform over MasterCard from, from a business and from a stock perspective. I think that's very hard to say. So mm. I wouldn't... I think a good strategy is to own them all. If, if you think this is a space and... Like I said, they don't look super cheap. They never do because they're, they're very good businesses, but the growth is there. And you talk about the international. Last year, or this most recent quarter over at Visa, around 50% of the volume came from, from abroad. Mm-hmm. Back in 2008, it was only 40%. Right. So it's increasing. The sure. U.S. obviously isn't going to grow as much, but that share is going to increase. Right, and, and the growth is much faster. And, and the, the main risk here is regulation. If you go into the 10K and look at the risk factors, the first seven mm. are all regulation-based because they're going out, they're setting these fees, and governments come in and say, hey, that, that seems a little high, or we're going to take a, take a slice of that. So that's the main risk here. And I don't know if you can ever really quantify that. It may be something you just have to, have to sleep with. I, th- I think, yeah, I think you just have to live with it if you're going to, to invest in these. I, I, I don't disagree with, with your idea of, of owning them all, but I'm saying if, if you put a gun to my head and said, choose... You're going to own Visa or you're going to own MasterCard. I think I've got to go with Visa. I would probably agree with you. All right. That, that is a good choice. Good okay. choice. <laughs> uh, moving on to the game for today, we have our uh, Rank It. Mm-hmm. So what we're going to do is we're going to take the big four banks. Uh, we've looked at this a little bit before, but we're going to revisit, think about what's, what's happened over the past few months, what's happened in this past quarter that we just heard about. And, uh, and, and deliver our rankings for the top, the, the biggest four banks out there. Right. Why don't you start us off? All right. Starting it off, sounding like a broken record. My number one of the four is J.P. Morgan. And we have all four from there on the screen, so I'm going to list them right, ne- right quick. It's J.P. Morgan, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and down in the basement is Citigroup. They're down in the basement. I'm sorry, Citigroup. J.P. Morgan, you, uh, look, you look at the performance. The valuation of the performance, I can't have them not number one, in my opinion. It just uh, I know the headlines, and people look at the stock and say, why isn't the stock reacting to these headlines? Because I think the market realizes that... It's already been priced in. And it doesn't really... It's been priced in, into that multiple. That multiple is beaten down. The valuation is beaten down. And it doesn't impact the long-term earnings potential here. So they're my number one. Wells Fargo, very similar performance. Valuation... Or Wells Fargo is my three. I get ahead Wells of Fargo myself. Is I, I was, I, I was going to say, I was surprised to see Bank of America as your number two. You're not the biggest Bank of America fan. They're... They're gaining on me. They're winning my heart over Ooh. little by little. The strategy seems to be working. Expenses are coming out. I thought I thought the new BAC was a pretty lofty goal, the eight billion, but they seem to be achieving it. So the question is, they can achieve What's, the expenses. It's the leadership of Brian Moynihan. There you it's go. Clearly, the if they can achieve the expenses Moynihan. and get that behind them, and then start growing revenue, it can be very powerful there. So that's why they're number two. Wells Fargo, similar performance evaluation isn't quite there, and well, and Citigroup down at number four. I'm a little sour in Citigroup. I know it looks cheap, but I'm just not in on the global strategy quite yet. Hmm. Try to change my mind. Where do you have Citigroup in there? I, I had Citigroup. Let's take a look at my rankings real quick. Just the same as you, I've got J.P. Morgan as number one. Citigroup's my number three. 
Um, I actually just recently purchased Citigroup for my personal portfolio. I, I just... It, it took me too, it took me too long, I think, to come around to Citigroup. I think the I think the global strategy is a is a good one. I think uh, Corbat is, is doing a good job so far. I think the the bank is turning a corner, and and uh, I, I think if, when we look back five years from now at the Citigroup that we'll have five years from now versus the Citigroup that we had uh, ha- have today or had certainly prior to the financial crisis, it's going to be night and day. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think. This is going to be a, uh, a bank truly focused on global banking in the, the true sense of banking. Um, and my concern previously with Citigroup was it was just it was doing a lot of stuff and didn't know what it was or what it wanted to be. And I'm getting more and more of a sense as I watch Citigroup develop, as I watch Corbat run this business, that it is that it increasingly does know what it, what it wants to be, and Corbat knows where he wants to take this business. So uh, combine that with the valuation. Of course, you're not getting the returns yet. Citigroup's returns aren't back to where they need to be, but the hope is is that over time that does happen. Wells Fargo, I had at number two, which I kind of surprised myself with that ranking. But, but frankly, you look at the returns that, that, um, that Wells Fargo produces, you look at the long-term performance, at, at less than two times tangible book value, I have, I have trouble saying that Wells Fargo isn't a, isn't a solid bank. Bank of America in the basement, explain yourself. You're a shareholder. Yes, yes, I am. And, and I'm, I'm, still, I'm still high on Bank of America, but you've just... You got to look at the look at the four here, and Bank of America is clearly underperforming. Bank of America still has probably the most to prove of any of these. Maybe you could say it's Citigroup, but I think it's Bank of America has the most to prove. Of course, the stock back to trading at just a slight premium to tangible book value, so that's that's pretty attractive. But here's the thing: here's my overall takeaway on these four is I think you you can, and if you're a bank investor and, and you're able to look at these and evaluate them on your own, you can and should own all four of them. I, I think it's worthwhile to own all four of these banks. Bold statements. It, it is, but it's not that hard when you when you look at how these are valued versus what they're producing and what they have the capability pr- to produce. I think again, look ahead five years. Go go ahead five years and look back, and you're going to be saying, "Wow, that was a no-brainer. How did I miss that?" All right, we'll check back in five years. <laughs> I'm sure we will. All right, finishing out the day as we always do on the Twitter sphere. David, what is our first tweet? First tweet about J.P. Morgan. This is from Chris Arnod. Hope I'm saying that right. It says when J.P. Morgan blows up, it will blow up. Thirteen billion dollars will be a rounding error. Is J.P. Morgan blowing up? Did I miss the news? No. No, it's, it's that would be bad if J.P. Morgan blew up. It, Thirteen billion would be a rounding error, but I hope I'm not around when J.P. Morgan blows up. It, sure, it would be a rounding error if J.P. Morgan blew up. It's it's not it's not going to happen. Um, th- there are a lot of people that there, there's a lot of uh, commentary out there. If you if you look at the blogs, not really in the the mainstream and the financial news and that sort of thing, but if you look at the blogs and you look at some of the commentary, some of the stuff on Twitter, people are convinced that J.P. Morgan is is a criminal enterprise. This is that's the, a phrase that I've seen thrown around a lot. I, I simply don't believe that to be true. Um, and, and and I think that's a lot of looking in the rear view. And and what's interesting is is I was looking I was looking back. Uh, an interesting thing thing to think about is that Jamie Dimon really took over as the CEO of J P Morgan around the beginning of two thousand six. So if you think about what he actually could have done between two thousand six and when the financial crisis hit, it was pretty limited. Mm-hmm. So the impact that we're going to see from uh, Dimon was really managing 
as the crisis was going on, and today as he manages the fallout of all of that. So um, I think I think look ahead five years. If, if Diamond sticks around that long, uh, we'll have a better better length of time over which to judge how Jamie Diamond has managed this bank. Fair enough. Second tweet we've got. Slate's Moneybox. That's at Slate Moneybox. The tweet is, predicting a crash years in advance is unimpressive. Unimpressive, David. I'm not impressed. How, how, many, how many crashes have you predicted years in advance? <laughs> no crashes. It, it's, it's, actually, you know, it's actually a really good point. Uh, and and the, the article that's linked out there, it, it basically talks about, if, if you go ahead, you, you can say a lot of things years in advance, and maybe someday they'll pan out. But if in the meantime, so for example, if I say, well, th- there's going to be a big correction in stocks. Stocks are going to go down 20 to 25%. I, I, You'll be right eventually. I, I think that I had, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say there's a 100% probability that I will be right sometime within the next 5, 10 years. The problem is, is, is that if stocks continue to go up between now and then, then if anybody is listening to me, they're, they're doing terrible right? because they're, they're selling out of stocks now, waiting for this thing, and, and it doesn't happen. Uh, so, yeah, predicting. It's like, it's like saying there's going to be a huge hurricane that hits Miami. It's like At some yeah, point. eventually it's gonna, probably going to happen. And then when it happens, you can say, hey, I called it. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't discourage anyone from going down to visit Miami for a weekend right now. So. It's the whole broken clock is right twice a day. All right, moving on to the last tweet from our own Jason Moser. He says, the world needs the Motley Fool now more than ever. And he mentions a tweet from CNBC that says 37% of middle-income Americans expect to work until they die. I don't think that's such a bad thing. Oh, well, I, we, we've talked about this before. We've talked about this before on here. What are you going to do? And, and we've talked. I don't play golf. I, I don't like to play golf. I like to travel. But when, when, I, get to be, when I get to be of retirement age, I don't think I'm going to have the interest to just say, well, I don't want to do anything anymore. It's, it's not in my nature. But I think the difference is, is that I want that to be a choice mm. as opposed to I don't have enough money right. to be able to do anything else but take a McDonald's job, throwing the fries. In the right. I'm, certainly not, I'm not saying don't save for retirement, <laughs> but I don't think it's... I think that's exactly what you're saying. You yeah. want everybody to be broke. Official Motley Fool advice. Never <laughs> said, no. Um, hey, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I'm, I'm not looking at, oh, I can't wait till 65 so I can sit in a chair all day. No, that's, <laughs> that's stupid. Watch your soaps. Yeah, maybe. What's your favorite soap? All My Children, baby. Is that even on anymore? I think so. I don't know. <laughs> you have no idea. Well, I would, I would like to continue working. I would like to have something to do in my, in my older years, but I, I want that to be my choice. And Jason's right. And we're, we're company guys here. The Motley Fool is a great way to, for, for people to figure out how to achieve that. I agree. So that's what we've got for today. That's the show. Uh, continue to tune in the rest of the week. We have some fool in the blank coming at you tomorrow. And as always, on Friday, we'll be playing a little round of investing chicken. We may even have a nice little chicken hat for David to wear when he chickens out. All right, folks, thanks for watching. We will see you tomorrow. <laughs>